All right. Um, I had hoped to get through all of this material in the first session. I want to talk about the importance of a confession of faith to those outside of the church. We've just talked about the in, those inside. Now let's talk about those who are outside. What benefit is there in a confession of faith? First thing to say is that it provides an identity to demonstrate orthodoxy. Uh, look with me at 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> I had forgotten how um, dry it can be up here in the desert. And uh, I can feel it in my throat, and I can feel it in my body. And uh, wow. Yeah, if you're used to it, yeah. I don't, I don't like a lot of humidity either, but I'm, I'm just not used to this. It wasn't this dry down in uh, Los Angeles at the Puritan Conference. It was a little, little bit more humidity. All right, 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now, that's not just a simple statement that, that, again, like in Romans chapter 10, we can say Jesus is Lord, that we can confess that Jesus is the Son of God. It has a very specific meaning. That meaning focuses on the fact of who Jesus is, both as the eternal Son of God and as the one who assumes our human flesh. And you know, in our day and age, this is becoming a growing necessity. People on the outside need to be able to look at us and categorize us. In fact, this is why our confession of faith was first published. It was published so that others might recognize our orthodoxy. Listen, listen to these words. Um, it troubles me that our confession of faith many times has been printed without the letter that precedes it the letter titled, To the Judicious and Impartial Reader. And uh, I, I would love to be able to read the entirety of the letter to you, but I won't do that. I'll just read to you several paragraphs. But listen to what they say. They, they talk about the fact that there had been a previous confession issued in the 1640s, and that confession served its purpose and was very helpful but it's not in print anymore and it's difficult to obtain. And for other reasons, they determined that it was best to issue a new confession of faith. So they say this, and for as much as our method and manner of expressing our sentiments in this, that is the second London, doth vary from the former, that is the first London, although the substance of this matter is the same, we shall freely impart to you the reason and occasion thereof. One thing that greatly prevailed with us to undertake this work was not only to give a full account of ourselves to those Christians that differ from us about the subject of baptism, but also the profit that might from thence arise unto those that have any account of our labors and their instruction and establishment in the great truths of the gospel and the clear understanding and steady belief of which our comfortable walking with God and fruitfulness before him in all our ways is most nearly concerned." And therefore we did conclude it necessary to express ourselves the more fully and distinctly and also to fix on such a method as might be most comprehensive of those things we designed to explain our sense and belief thereof. And finding no defect in this regard, in that fixed on by the assembly, now that's the Westminster Assembly, so the Westminster Confession of Faith, and after them by those of the congregational way, 
and they are referring to something that's called the the um, Savoy Declaration, which was uh, a, an edited version of the Westminster Confession that was published by the Congregationalists in 1658. So they're saying that the Westminster Assembly did a great job, and so did the Congregationalists. We did readily conclude it best to retain the same order in our present confession. And also when we observed that those last mentioned, that is the Congregationalists, did in their confessions, for reasons which seemed of weight both of themselves and others, choose not only to express their mind in words concurrent with the former in sense concerning all those articles wherein they were, to, were agreed. Let me, let me translate that for you. The Congregationalists gladly adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith, its paragraphs and its language, because they wanted to confess the same things. So the Congregationalists decided the best, best method was to follow those who preceded them, but also for the most part, without any variation of the terms, we did in like manner concluded best to follow their example. So what the Congregationalists did, we're doing, in making use of the very same words with them, both in these articles, which are very many, wherein our faith and doctrine are the same with theirs. And this we did the more abundantly to manifest our consent with both in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, as also with many others, whose Orthodox confessions have been published to the world on the behalf of the Protestants in diverse nations and cities. Now think about this this way. They're, they're looking backwards about 30 years in England, okay? And they say, 20 years ago, the Congregationalists adopted the Westminster Confession, which was about 10 years old then, and they did so to confess the same thing, and we're following their pattern. But when we follow that pattern, we're looking across the, the English Channel to the continent of Europe and to the churches on the continent of Europe who also confess the same things that, as we do. You see how it's expanding here, both geographically and even in terms of time, because many of those confessions that came forth from the continent of Europe were older. So they're putting themselves into this stream. We want to say the same things that they do. And also, here's a great Great sentence. I know that Rich loves this one. And also to convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words. Isn't that great? I, I saw my doctor on Monday. He wants me to see a cardiologist because he's afraid that my at 67 my veins are getting clogged. I, I can't tell. I feel fine, but he wants me to see. Well, they don't want to clog religion with new words. Let's use the old words. Let's agree with those who've gone before us. We readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which hath been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us. And then they make a really important statement. Hereby declaring before God, angels, and men. You know what that is? That's language from the pastoral epistles. Because Paul uses that kind of language as he writes to Timothy and calls Timothy to account. He testifies before the heavenly courtroom that the words that he's saying are true or that the charge that he gives to Timothy is very important. So th they're really ramping this up here. They're making this important. Testifying, declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them and that wholesome Protestant doctrine which with so clear evidence of Scripture they have asserted. So this confession of faith was a means to demonstrate orthodoxy before others in the world. That's why it was published 
And when we adopt it, it provides to others on the outside um, a demonstration of our commitment to the orthodox truths that have been held in the Church of Jesus Christ since the Reformation, and as we saw in the first hour, even before the Reformation, all the way back to the, the early church, to the church fathers. That's what this does for us. So a confession of faith for those on the outside demonstrates orthodoxy. A second benefit of a confession of faith is that it provides an identity in a day when identities are purposely hidden or ignored. Have you ever noticed the trend in church names? Existence Church, River Church, Love Church, Reality Church, Evergreen Church. What do they mean? Why do this? Well, because bland, generic evangelicalism combined with a love for the trendy takes away identity. There is no identity beyond the basic, the word church. Now, sometimes the word church even is ignored. We have a congregation not far from my house. I don't know what they are. That they, they just moved. Apparently, they're, they're quite large, and they've sold their building. But on the front of the building, their, their symbol was an asterisk, not a cross. It was a, what, what kind of a symbol is an asterisk for a supposedly evangelical church? I really couldn't get it. And then they changed their name, and now their name is More Church, M-O-R-E, Church. Once again, I have no idea what that's supposed to mean. Now, somebody suggested that there's a, there's a tendency among some charismatics to use the, the word more as if we want more. We hold up our hands and we want God to give us more. Maybe that's what they mean, but more church with an asterisk. I, I don't know. And, you know, in my neighborhood, I would see cars with a bumper sticker of just the asterisk because I pay attention. Whenever I drive around, I'm always looking at signs for churches and church buildings. It's one of those things that my mind does. I knew that they were an asterisk church. So when I saw the asterisk and no words on the car, I knew that that's what they were saying. Maybe it was a means to, to, to instigate conversations or something. I don't know. But you know what happens when that's the case? And please don't take this as an indictment of every congregation that's chosen a name like that. But really, the beauty, beauty of the faith is lost when we hide it behind a name like Evergreen Fellowship. I hope that we're evergreen. If evergreen means growing and, and life, full of life, I don't have an objection to the concept. I, I'm not trying to criticize them. But I think that when we do that, the beauty of the faith is lost. And so we have a confession of faith, and we can say, and it's a good thing to say, that we are Lutherans or we are Presbyterians or we are Baptists. It's not a bad thing to say that, as long as we don't say Baptists are the only Christians in all the world. Once we go there, we've crossed the line. But we ought not to say that. But it doesn't hurt to identify ourselves as what we are. Now, this leads me to my third point. A confession of faith provides us with a basis for cooperation with others. It provides us with a basis of cooperation with others sort of repeating what I just said. 
Brothers and sisters, we are not the only Christian believers, and our congregations are not the only Christian congregations. There are many others. Though we may have differences with them on one matter or another, on one doctrine or one practice, a confession of faith allows us to work together with them within certain boundaries. Now, the closest cooperation that we might have with others are churches that themselves hold our confession of faith, other Reformed Baptists. And we can work closely with them because they share the same doctrine and practice as we do, and they identify themselves in the same way that we do. Perhaps, though, we are able to work in many cases with other churches uh, in the Reformed tradition. That's what I was able to do for 20 years at Westminster Seminary in California, which is approximately one-third Orthodox Presbyterian, one-third Presbyterian Church in America, one-third United Reformed Church, with a couple of other um, uh, groups thrown in every once in a while for good measure, but was able to work with them. And then, because we share together those foundational matters of the Christian faith that are identified in the four great creeds of the church, we can work together with other evangelicals who confess the same things. In what certain circumstances and in the right way, we're able to do that. And that's a good thing. And we do it on the basis of our confession of faith. We can look at each other and say, this is what you believe, this is what you don't believe. You know, when I was at Westminster, well, people asked me the question, have you ever had debates in the faculty lounge about baptism? They're, they're anxious, ready. I said, never. Never. I never did have one. And the reason that I never had one is that wasn't my job. I was a guest on their campus. I wasn't there to turn them all into Reformed Baptists. They were showing me kindness and our students' kindness by allowing us to be there. You, you know, you don't want a guest to come into your home and say, you know, your wall would really look better if it was painted blue. Why don't you paint it blue? And I don't really like the carpet, and, and you really need to replace your sofa. It's, you know, it's a little worn out. What would you do if a guest came into your house and started doing that? Or your wife cooks a nice meal, and the guest sits down and says, you know, this needs more salt, or you put too much salt in this, or why didn't you add uh, garlic, or you know, whatever. It, it would be wrong for a guest to do that, wouldn't it? And that's how I viewed my time at Westminster. I, I didn't want to be a bad guest. But in the classroom, man, I talked a lot about believer's baptism. And it was always ironic to me. I would look around and I would see a building that was built with basically Presbyterian money, a lot of it Dutch. And here I am, a Baptist in the classroom, trying to undo the doctrines that they hold dear in terms of baptizing babies. Now, they knew I was doing that. I was not being uh, subversive in doing that. That was my job. The classroom was the right place to talk about that, not outside the doors of the classroom. But it was what we had in common that allowed me to be there for 20 years and share in those things. And I, I think it's very, very important for us to cultivate a, a mentality and a recognition that can see in others the grace of God in the gospel, acknowledge the truth of their churches, receive their ministry, sit under their preaching, um, work together with them in certain projects that would help to work together, 
And it's the confession of faith that allows us to do that because they can see what we believe, we can see what they believe, and we can say, we have all of this in common, let's go forward. That's really important because that's what Jesus prayed for in John 17 is unity, unity in the truth. Okay, we differ on whether or not a baby should be baptized, but we have a whole lot in common. Let's go forward. Let's do that. A confession of faith allows us to do that. Fourthly, a confession of faith protects the church from external threats. You know, there is a dark side of working together with others because there are enemies. And there are enemies who will be subtle and seductive in the way that they work. If your Bible's still open to 1 John, just turn over a page to Jude. Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In the language of Jude here, a confession of faith expresses our common salvation. It tells us what we have in common with others. But it's something that we must contend for. And there are those who would seek to move us from it or move it from us. They creep in unawares. They look good when they come in. They say the right things. But their goal ultimately is to move us away from the common salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. The confession of faith can act as a plumb line from which we must not deviate. It helps us to look at those on the outside who want to work with us and make determinations as to whether or not we ought to. And because sometimes they will, to use Jude's language here, they creep in unnoticed, we need protection. So that when suddenly we realize that someone has come in with nefarious motives, we have a means of determining what is right and wrong. So we have to be careful to do this. Now let me, before I move forward into a slightly different subject, let me look back at my notes and summarize for you these 11 points that I've had, uh, broken up uh, into two sessions. A confession of faith provides clear content to our faith. It provides a basis of unity in the church. It provides a foundation for life and godliness. It provides theological safety and stability to the members of a church. It provides a basis for instructing children and converts. It provides guidelines for elders. It protects the church from internal threats. It provides an identity to demonstrate orthodoxy. It provides an identity in our day when our identities are purposely hidden or ignored. It provides a basis for working together with others, and it protects the church from external threats that is the dark side of cooperation. Now, there's probably many more things that we could say, but hopefully these 11 reasons confirm our strong commitment to confessionalism. Now, if you have questions that you'd like to ask about those things, uh, we do have that Q&A session that's coming a little bit later, and uh, we'll be happy to try to respond to some of them at that point.
Brother, I've totally lost track of time. Where, where should I be heading towards? Okay, okay. Okay, good, thank you. Now, what I would like to do is to begin to talk about our own confession of faith for uh, a while and give you a, a sense of why it came into, into being and how helpful it can be. My son Sam, the other day, said something that was a little funny, but I knew what he meant immediately. We were talking about the confession, and he said, I've never seen a copy of the 1689 confession. <laughs> Do you know why he said that? Because it was not published in 1689. It was published in 1677, and then in 1688, and then in 1699. So it's, it's technically not the 1689 Confession of Faith. And if you have the tattoo, I'm sorry, you're going to have to change it. <laughs> It's, it's, it's called the 1689 Confession because it was adopted by the General Assembly of particular Baptist churches that met in London in September of 1689. But it's not, so that's it, it, one of my goals in life is to get people to stop calling it the 1689 Confession. Call it the Second London Confession. Um, our Confession of Faith came into existence really because of a controversy that took place in the 1670s. Uh, there was a man named Thomas Collier who had been sent out from one of the London churches to what's called the West Country. If you, if you looked at a map and you saw London, which is basically in the south of England, and you look to its left, all of those counties that are to the left all the way out to uh, the ocean, the sea, are the West Country. So especially Wiltshire and Somerset and Devon, those places. Thomas Collier was sent out there in 1645 by one of the London churches to plant congregations in the West Country, and he was very successful in doing so. But in the 1670s, for the second time in his life, he began to manifest unorthodoxy and ultimately heresy. And he published a book. He, he was a very prominent man, well-known. In fact, there's a, um, a book by a prominent Presbyterian that's, that's written against Thomas Collier. Because of his prominence, when he published a book with the title, A Confession of Faith, and because he had deviated so seriously from the faith once delivered to the saints, it was determined that something needed to be done. Now, there were many meetings that were held. Even his church in Southwick and Somerset asked for help from the elders in London. There were meetings that were convened. There were conversations that were had. And ultimately, Collier refused to repent of his errors. He had problems with the doctrine of the Trinity. He had problems with the Incarnation. He had uh, problems with the doctrine of God in general. Um, he had problems with, uh, with eternal punishment. He denied justification by faith alone. I mean, this guy began to attack all the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And yet here's a prominent, well-known, particular Baptist publishing a confession of faith whose contents were completely unorthodox. 
So one of the remedies, there were, there were two specific remedies that were employed by the Baptists, but one of them was to publish a confession of faith. And our confession of faith was intended to be a means to uh, head off Thomas Collier's errors and to demonstrate that the rest of the churches did not buy the, the false doctrines of Thomas Collier, but that they in fact confessed Orthodox Christianity. You've heard me re- read from the, the, the epistle at the beginning, how they wanted to agree with the, the words of the Protestants, both in the assembly and the congregational divines, and then even with the broader Protestant uh, uh, communion in Europe itself. That's where our confession of faith comes from, and that's why its, its original date was 1677. The first known literary reference to the confession is in the handwritten minutes of the Petty France Church in London. And uh, on, in August of 1677, there's an entry that says, a confession of faith having been read by the brethren should be published. And soon after it appears. In fact, I've got digital copies. I don't own, uh, you know, if, if I had a copy of the confession of faith in its first edition, it would probably be worth $10,000. I never even tried to think about buying one. I have seen some in libraries, but I've got digital copies of them. And there were two editions that were printed in 1677. That's the first time that we, we know that it came into existence. Now, as I've worked with the Confession very closely for years, um, all kinds of ideas have come into my mind. One of them is I, w- I would like to be able to commission an artist, a very skilled portrait painter, oil on canvas type of thing, to depict the scene at which our Confession of Faith was edited. Now, there, there was no public meeting. Sometimes you'll read in, in some literature that there, there was a, a, an assembly of churches and they came together and they talked through matters. No, that didn't happen. It seems to have come out of the Petit France Church and that the elders of the Petty France Church were the men responsible for editing the Confession of Faith. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence to make that point, including the fact that the first time that it appears in literature is in the Petty France Church book. But I, I like to imagine that there were a series of scenes. They obviously couldn't have done this in one sitting. But a portrait that would be painted of one of the sessions that was held and I can tell you what that portrait would have looked like. I, if, if you're a skilled oil painter, come talk to me. Maybe I can commission you to do this painting for me. But I can tell you what it would look like. Imagine a room in, uh, in an old building in London with a wooden table. And perhaps next to the table, a, a case or a shelf of books. And two men... Nehemiah Cox and William Collins are seated at at the table. Now, we don't have any portraits of either one of them. We don't know what they looked like. There are a lot of portraits from the Puritan era. We don't have either one of those, though we're we're growing in our ability to build up biographies of the two men, fascinating guys. Nehemiah Cox ended up with a a medical degree from, um, I think it was from Leiden or Utrecht in the Netherlands, became an honorary member of the uh, fellow, the, uh, an honorary fellow of the Royal Society of Physicians, um, died in 1688. William Collins 
was from apparently a relatively well-to-do family. He seems to have been a student at the Westminster School in London, which is one of the most prestigious private schools today in London at Westminster Abbey. His family owned the right to um, the living. That, that's the term that was used for um, being able to appoint a minister in a parish in the Church of England. His family owned the right to the living of a church in Warwickshire. And uh, there's evidence that, uh, that Collins was involved in some way in that, uh, that living. There's all kinds of fascinating things that we're learning about the two of them. But back to the room. Okay, you've got a, a, a wooden table in front of you. And there are two men seated at the table. And there are some books on the table. What books are on the table? I can tell you with certainty that these things are on the table because working closely with the confession makes it very clear. First, there was an authorized version of the Bible on the table, what we would call the King James Version. That's the version. It was just the popular version of the day. That's what they used. It would have been there on the table. They would have had to use it to make reference to the scripture proofs that were attached to the first edition. And by the way, at least one of the scripture proofs in the first edition, and it's been repeated in almost every edition since, has a printer's error in it. It's, it's a mistake. Uh, have you ever heard of the printer's devil? That's the name that they gave to um, sometimes to the, the boy, the teenager who, who did the typesetting. But sometimes also they used it as a means to describe the errors that crept in. Everything was set by hand. And so you'll, you'll read these old books and you'll have a, uh, a word that is spelled with an N, but it looks like a U, and that's just because the boy who set the type turned the N upside down, so it looks like a U. Or he didn't pay attention to what he was typesetting from and made a mistake. So in one place, I, I've had this, uh, uh, it's in chapter 8, and the proof text is 1 Corinthians 4.10, and I've had friends send me an email and say, I can't make heads or tails of this. What, what is this proof text about? So I looked at it, and I thought, yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. But then I turned it around to 1 Corinthians 10.4 and looked at 1 Corinthians 10.4 and it made perfect sense. So I realized that whoever typeset that day happened to switch the numbers. And so you have errors like that that come in. So, but anyways, you have the King James Version Bible. They would have had a Hebrew Old Testament and a Greek New Testament on the table. Uh, sometimes in the footnotes or, or in notes, they make reference to the original languages. So we know that they had that capability, um, even from the, the broader literature that they wrote. Cox wrote more than Collins did. Cox didn't write very much. Um, they had facility in Hebrew and Greek, so those things would have been on the table. Likewise, a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith would have been there. That's pretty obvious. A copy of the Savoy Declaration of 1658 would have been present. And then, interestingly enough, also on the table, was a copy of the First London Confession of Faith in its 1646 edition, because there are many instances in which Cox and Collins brought material from the earlier London Confession into the Second London Confession. There's an intimate relationship between them. Now, some other books that I'm pretty sure would have been on the table, I know for certain that they quoted from these books so that's why I assume they may have been on the table. If not, we'll assign them to the bookshelf next door. There would have been several of the volumes of John Owen's works, because Owen appears 
at, at times almost in direct quotation in the body of the confession. Likewise, Thomas Goodwin, when you come to chapter 15 of repentance, you'll find that they took chapter 15 from the Savoy Declaration, but it is summarized in one of the, uh, the books of, Tho- of Thomas Goodwin. So he would have been present. Another, let's, let's look at the bookshelf to the side. What would have been there? Well, there are several commentaries that seem to have been regularly used by our fathers as they worked through things, and especially when they made certain changes to the confession. There was published in the 1640s a, a, a lengthy exposition of the whole Bible that we call the English Annotations. And these were notes that were made on most of the verses of the Bible by a number of different contributors. Some of them were members of the Westminster Assembly, but not all of them. Likewise, you may know the name Matthew Poole. Matthew Poole has a, there's a commentary series or set that has been published under Matthew Poole's name. Uh, The Banner of Truth has offered an edition of it. Some of you may have it on your shelves. That was published after Poole died. And uh, Matthew Poole died when he got to Isaiah 58. So everything after Isaiah 58 was written by someone else, generally from Poole's notes. Now, Poole had published in English, I'm sorry, in Latin, a very important work called Synopsis Criticorum, in which he draws out from all of the previous commentators on the Bible uh, what he perceived to be the best expositions of all of the different verses. Never translated into English, although someone is in the process of doing so, so that it becomes a little bit more available. But that was complete in Poole's lifetime. And that would have been on the bookshelf next to them. Um, In the appendix to the Confession of Faith, there is a lengthy quotation from one of the men at the Westminster Assembly whose name is John Lightfoot. In fact, it's a Latin quotation, a couple of pages long, that they translated into English. So we know that they had facility in Latin and that they were turning to the writings of John Lightfoot, which are incorporated into the appendix to the Confession of Faith. Uh, A couple of other sources that would have been there, Edward Lee, who was attending at the Westminster Assembly, another one of his colleagues from Westminster, Francis Chainel, um, would stand behind chapter two on the doctrine of God. There was, alongside the English annotations, there was a set of commentaries called the Dutch annotations. Guess where they came from? They uh, were very similar to the English ones, but done by Dutch um, uh, theologians and they put that together. All of those things, and probably more, were sources that would have been available to our fathers. Now, what does this tell us? This tells us that what they tried to do, words that I've already read to you from the the, the epistle at the beginning of the Confession of Faith, is that they were very much concerned with identifying with broader Puritan theology, and beyond that, with the Reformed theology of, of the continent. They wanted to make that clear that was important to them. They wanted to be known as men and churches, church members, women, children, whoever. They wanted to be known as those who belonged to that family. So they were very careful, and they spent a lot of time trying to do that. And these authors that I've just mentioned to you are some of the best 
Some, some of the most famous, you may not have heard of Francis Chanel or Edward Lee, but if you had access to their works, you would find them to be profound theologians, first-rate theologians. If you could see, you know, there, you can find on Google Books a copy of the English annotations from the Boston Public Library. It's in color. It's a memory hog. When I load it up on my computer, my computer goes like this because they're, black, uh, they're color pictures of these folio volumes, page by page by page. And someone, it might have even been one of the Mathers in, in New England, has annotated them in ink so that you get the, the comments of the, the commentators and then you get the comments of maybe Increase Mather or Cotton Mather or one of those and the book ended up in the Boston Public Library. You can access it yourselves, and it's really interesting. That's behind our Confession of Faith. Now, if you have a copy, if you take it out, let's, let's have a look at some things here. Okay. The Confession of Faith is, is largely structured along the lines of the Westminster Confession of Faith with some additions and with some material left out. And I want to talk about uh, the way that it's put together and then some of the additions and subtractions. Um, I cannot prove to you that the authors of the confession thought in terms of an outline. I think that that's a modern invention. Well, actually, no, they, they did a lot of things in outline form. But I, I've never seen an exposition of any of the three major confessions as if they were in outline form. But it seemed handy to me to try to put together an outline of the confession. So I've done that. I break it up into four parts, pretty straightforward. The first six chapters are what I call first principles. They lay down the basis of doctrine that is to be worked out uh, throughout the confession of faith. So you have the scriptures in chapter 1, which give to us, they provide to us the building blocks from which we can construct a system of faith. Um, we, we don't want to believe anything. We have to have something that provides for us the means by which we can build this certain and sure uh, system of doctrine. And so the place that we go to is the scriptures. We believe that they're inspired, that they're inerrant, that they're infallible, that they are certain, they are sure, that God has given them to us, that his spirit came upon certain individuals and caused them to write the way that they write so that we have a book from Genesis through Revelation that is for us the word of God. And that's the beginning. That's where we start. It's called the principle of knowing. And we have to begin there. How, how can we know God? By experience, by our own thoughts, by our imaginations, by dreams? No, no, no. We know God because he has revealed himself to us in creation, but the creation gives us limited information about God. Better we learn about God in the scriptures. And so the first chapter lays out for us the basic doctrine of what the scriptures are. It identifies them for us by name, all the, all the books of the Bible. It gives us some principles of interpretation. It talks about the importance of translation. And it concludes with a statement that ultimately everything has to be brought to the bar of scripture. 
It's really a wonderful chapter. Then what? Well, we're talking about first principles or foundational matters. Then we come to the doctrine of God. And chapters 2 through 5 open up to us various aspects of the doctrine of God. Chapter 2 presents us with a chapter about God's nature, and this is called the principle of being. These are the two most basic facts of Christian theology, the principle of knowing the scriptures, the principle of being who God is. Because everything that exists depends upon God himself. And we have to be able to separate between the creator and the creature. So chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity lays out for us the nature of God as he is in himself. Eternally self-existent, glorious and majestic, uh, beautiful in holiness, and then triune. Father, Son, and Spirit. Chapter 3 of God's decree lays out for us the eternal purpose of God in making and governing all things outside of himself. That's what the decree is about. The decree helps to explain the reality in which we live. What we see around us, we see because God determined that this is what we would see. And there are all kinds of important facts about the decree of God, the nuances in how we understand the decree and its relationship to the world around us. But we have to then say that the decree of God is not a philosophical concept without any kind of reality. The decree of God must come into into being. And so chapters 4 and 5 deal with creation and providence. Creation speaks to us about the purpose of God and bringing into existence that which is not God. He does so in the space of six days, and all of it is very good. And Providence, chapter 5, speaks to us about God's continuing purpose and involvement in the world that he has created. In fact, if you remember from the shorter catechism, or the Baptist catechism as well, The question uh, is asked, what are the decrees of God? And that question is answered. And then it's followed by, how does God execute his decrees? And we're taught that God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So what we have here in these first five chapters is the scriptures, the building blocks, the doctrine of God, who he is, God's decree, the reality of his decree, it's eternal, and then how he brings it to pass in creation and providence. And then chapter 6 is about sin. It's about the marring of the good creation that God has made because of the fall of Adam and Eve, because of their wickedness, because of their sin. And it paints a realistic but dark picture of life in this world as a result of the disobedience of the first couple. Thankfully, the confession doesn't stop there because it moves on into the second section. And the second section is chapter 7 through 20, which I call the covenant. B.B. Warfield, the famous 19th century Princeton Presbyterian, great theologian, makes the point 
that the doctrine of the covenant is the architecture, the architectonic principle is actually what he calls it, but it's the architecture upon which the central section of the confession is built. So it's like the skeleton, the doctrine of the covenant. And everything from chapter 7 through chapter 20 in one way or another is related to the covenant. So chapter 7 defines the covenant for us. It gives us the basic doctrine. In fact, that's what um, both the second and the third sections do. They provide to us the basic doctrine in the first chapter of the section, and then the rest of the chapters set out for us various aspects of that doctrine. So we have the covenant defined in chapter 7. We have the covenant servant presented to us, Christ the mediator in chapter 8. We have the covenantal setting described to us in chapter 9 of free will, where it speaks about man's will as created, as fallen, as renewed, and then perfected. And then we have some chapters that might seem to us to be in a little bit of an unexpected order. I can remember wrestling with this decades ago. Because when we think about the order of salvation, we think about the fact that justification comes by faith, right? So I would have expected faith to be defined before justification is defined. And yet justification is chapter 11 and faith is chapter 14. Comes a couple of chapters later. And I was asking the question, why is that? Well, thankfully, I found the answer, worked through the answer based upon um, a dictionary that uh, is incredibly helpful and useful to us. And I realized that when covenant theology was being developed or worked out in its principles, there were two ways that the one covenant of grace was to be considered. The covenant of grace is God's eternal purpose to save sinners by Jesus Christ. But it has to be viewed in two ways. On the one hand, it has to be viewed in terms of God's actions. And on the other hand, it needs to be viewed in terms of man's responses to God's actions. And that's how chapters 10 through 18 are, are structured. So chapters 10 through 13, effectual calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification, look at the blessings of the covenant of grace from the divine perspective. They speak about what God does. We're dead in trespasses and sins, and so the Holy Spirit of God must be sent to us to call us and give us new life. Chapter 10, effectual calling. That effectual calling leads us to justification, which is a declaration by God that we are righteous based upon the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Not a result of our works. We're not justified by what we do, but we're justified because of what Christ has done and the pronouncement that comes to us from the Lord. This is followed by adoption. We don't implant ourselves into God's family but he calls us and gives us the privilege of being his sons. And then sanctification. Sanctification is first and foremost the work of God in which he calls us into his family. So chapters 10 through 13 are the covenant blessings. They're God's acts on behalf of his people. That's how he brings the covenant to us. 
But chapters 14 through 18 are a little bit different. And I call them covenant graces because they speak about the acts of humanity. Now think about this with me. We're not becoming Arminians all of a sudden. But let's think about this. Chapter 14 is about faith. Now faith is a gift of God. We have and we exercise faith because God gives it to us. But who exercises it? You do. He gives it to you, but you exercise it. What about repentance? Chapter 15. Repentance is a gift of God. The Bible clearly teaches us that. But does God repent? No, we repent. He shows us our sin, and we turn away from our sins. Chapter 16 of good works. Good works are those things that are done by the power of the Holy Spirit, but who does them? We do. Perseverance of the saints. It's interesting that the chapter 17 is not the preservation of the saints, but the perseverance of the saints. Who perseveres? Brothers and sisters, you do and I do. By the grace of God. And then chapter 18 of assurance Who enjoys assurance? You and I do. See, these chapters are placed the way that they are because they speak about the blessings that we enjoy and that we act upon. We're given faith, we believe. We're granted repentance, we repent. By the Spirit, we do good works. By the Spirit, we persevere in the faith. By the Spirit, we enjoy the assurance of faith. So what you have here in these chapters after the covenant is defined and the servant is presented to us and free will is discussed, we have covenant blessings emphasizing God's actions first and then covenant graces emphasizing our responses to the prior activity of God's spirit. Never attributing these things to our own power and our own might. Nevertheless, you believe, you repent, you enjoy assurance. You see the difference? And that's why these chapters are laid out for us. That's why faith comes three chapters after justification. Because it's one of the blessings or the graces that comes to us. Uh, These are not, the chapters aren't laid out in consecutive uh, chronological order. They're laid out according to what God does and then how we respond to what God does. And then in chapters 19 and 20, you have the law and you have the gospel both of which are um, wonderful statements of um, the the law brings us to Christ and the gospel. Not so much how the gospel saves sinners, because that's already been covered, but rather how the gospel finds its way throughout the earth according to the sovereignty of God. Well, I won't uh, won't keep going right now. I will take our break and come back after the break for our final session. And I can see that I'm not going to make as much progress as I hope to make. But we'll come back and talk about the, uh, the doctrine of uh, Christian liberty and the end things and uh, some other maybe couple of comments about the confession of faith. And then we'll see if we can get to the third, how do you teach the confession to your family? All right. Any, 